The reading is taken from 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, and beginning at verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts Boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I'm sure everyone here has walked down Corn Market. For those of you who are international visitors, it's that really thronging uh, sort of thoroughfare that runs um, north-south through Oxford with all the shops and masses of people. I want you to imagine in your mind's eye, Saturday afternoon, this is my absolute nightmare of having to go into central Oxford. Hundreds, thousands of people seething up and down that street. You can just imagine the street sellers, the man with a sandwich board advertising currency rates. Various temples, temples to mobile phones, cheap food, cheap clothes. Pashmina sellers, 
people of other religions, well, of all religions, handing out tracts. And now and again, you see some fearless evangelist standing on his soapbox preaching the gospel. But all around, rather like a river swirling around a a, a rock that's standing in its way, people from every corner of the globe jostling around as they go about their business. And I want to suggest that this is perhaps a metaphor for first century Corinth. It was a thriving uh, international crossroads where many cultures and religions mingled. A city city offering an array of Roman gods, uh, and the original Greek temple there, I believe, had a thousand uh, temple prostitutes. It was a place of rampant sexuality. And key to our passage today, it was where knowledge, wisdom, and intellectual prowess were celebrated and were marks of social standing and success. A little familiar, perhaps. And it was into this mixing pot that Paul brought the gospel of Christ. Perhaps not a little unlike our street preacher standing against the current in uh, Corn Market. One can imagine at the very least that Paul's efforts were like swimming against the tide. The gospel message stood in opposition to everything that the city stood for, all its values, their whole way of thinking. And so I imagine that the Corinthian Christians to whom Paul wrote this letter were finding it really, really tough. It's easy to read this letter and to think, oh my goodness, you know, how immature they all were. But it must have been a really tough environment to be a Christian. Not unlike, I suppose, being a young undergraduate in a university when you've left the sort of the warmth and family of your home church and you're going off hundreds of miles away. Now, last Sunday, Andrew dealt with the issue of uh, division that was afflicting uh, the church in Corinth and how unity within the body of Christ is a mark of Christian maturity. And this morning, I want to explain why confidence in the cross is an indispensable mark of Christian maturity. Now, our passage is really an explanation of chapter 1, verse 17, where Paul writes, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul felt called to preach a gospel that was full of power, full of the power of the cross, and that he must not try and pander to his listeners by using fancy rhetoric. Or else the power of his message, i.e. the cross, would be lost. And he explains why in verse 18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So the cross is the power of God. And my interpretation of that is that it includes the cross of Good Friday and the empty tomb of Easter Day. It's all the power of God. It is the most powerful demonstration of God's love for us. It was at that moment when the skies turned black, the earth trembled, and this heavenly plan that we should have all our sins, all the muck, all the accumulated filth in our lives dumped on the shoulders of that one 
perfect, sinless man. It was at that moment when I often reflect on the cross and I think, what was the worst bit? Was it the nails going in? Was it the humiliation? Was it the moment the cross jerked into place and all his weight was carried on those nails? I think it was at the moment when Jesus took on him all of our sins and for that moment, his Father in heaven who loved him had to look away, basically in disgust because he was so covered in the filth of our sins. But then by the shedding of Christ's blood, all our sins are washed clean away. We can enjoy that relationship, that restored relationship with God once again, so that we can live our lives as we were designed to live them. That is the power of the cross. All our rebellion down the ages brought to an end. All our sins taken care of. Centuries of sacrifices had not worked. The stench of the meaningless burnt offerings offensive to God until this one perfect sacrifice was made. That is the power of the cross. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, possibly the greatest preacher and evangelist there has been, when asked on how he prepared his sermons, he said, I take my text and I make a beeline for the cross. Good advice for me. Now, you can hear the message of the cross in one of two ways. You can ignore all the evidence and discard it as pure fantasy, a ridiculous, preposterous idea. You can even, as we are increasingly seeing in this country, try and stop the proclamation of the cross because it is offensive to people. And you can, in Paul's words, perish. Or you can accept it and at the very least be open to the possibility of it being true. And, in Paul's words, by its power be saved. But why is the cross so foolish? Well, I experienced a sense of this when I was at Wycliffe on a mission at Easter 2006 with some folk from St. Andrew's Church to Plymouth. Michael Green um, and I uh, had uh, shared two speaking engagements with uh, an army regiment down there, 2-9 Commando Regiment Royal Artillery, based in the Citadel at Plymouth. Now, this is an elite regiment of the army. Uh, all of them are commando trained, and it would be fair to say they're all pretty big, bruising men, many veterans of recent conflicts. Michael was struck by a nasty dose of flu, so instead of just carrying his uh, briefcase uh, and doing some praying with him, I was asked to do the talk in the sergeant's mess. I was well received, but one could sense that there were many there who were, oh my goodness, what have we got to sit through this for? You know, I've got plenty of things to do now. They resented having been ordered to attend. After a curry lunch, I stood up absolutely petrified, and I explained as best I could the gospel message. And quite frankly, I just wished the ground would swallow me up as quickly as possible, because they sat there motionless in stony silence, giving me that thousand-yard stare. There wasn't a flinch of sort of recognition or empathy on their faces at all. 
And I was acutely aware that I was trying to persuade these highly trained and professional soldiers for whom self-reliance was their form of higher wisdom. And it was uh, self-reliance being a highly esteemed uh, attribute that they were all wrong to put their faith in themselves and their friends, but actually they needed to put their faith and trust in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I suspect to most of them, my message seemed utterly idiotic, foolish, as it was so counter-cultural. Everything they'd been taught, look after yourself, sort yourself out because no one else is going to look after you. Turning all that on its head and saying, just ask Jesus to look after you. But they, of course, they had their own wisdom instilled in them by many years of training And, of course, it's perfectly necessary for them in their lives as professional soldiers to have that self-reliance. But the point I was trying to make was that it was only useful to them within the limits of their own horizons. What use would their wisdom be when they were beyond their horizons? Perhaps they were faced by death in a place of extreme danger, when, quite frankly, all they could really do was to hope and pray? Would they not need a different, more eternal wisdom then? Well, nobody dared raise their head above the parapet and uh, declare an interest in my talk. My Q&A lasted about two seconds. That was as long as my introduction was. Um, But praise God, some people did come up to me at the bar afterwards. Uh, It was very interesting, sort of sidling up to me, sort of looking around to make sure no one could really see that they were engaging with me. So hopefully there were some seeds planted. But looking at verse 20, Paul turns his guns on the Corinthian intelligentsia, both in and outside the church. He writes, where are the wise Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? It's quite difficult reading that one out from this pulpit in this church with so many um, university staff present. But you'll see. You'll see in a moment. Now, Paul's Corinthian opponents would have sensed significant humiliation in this message because, of course, they valued wisdom highly. They considered that they had moved beyond what they might have described as the mere milk of Paul's teaching onto greater things, onto higher things, onto more erudite, esoteric ideas. But Paul sees that any move beyond the gospel is not a positive move at all, but is a move to abandon Christ They have stopped being salt and light and once again have become part of the world where fine rhetorical displays were of more importance than the truth of the message. But unless um, some of you try and lynch me later, of course what Paul is talking about here is uh, he's not taking an issue with godly wisdom the sort of wisdom that God blessed Solomon with and about which so many Proverbs invite us to pray for. But he's taking an issue with the wisdom of the age. This might best be described as wisdom that belongs to the sphere of human self-sufficiency. And nowhere do we see this more evidenced than in the polemic of the militant atheists 
we have seen rise to prominence recently. I often wonder how I might square up to Richard Dawkins. I confess it's an absolute nightmare scenario for me. It's a frightening thought, but I do get some comfort is that I know that there are some uh, university staff here who have to sit next to him at high table for lunch occasionally, and they they also tell me that they find themselves slightly quaking in their boots. But I could try and tell Richard Dawkins that on every Alpha course I have been on, where at the end of the Holy Spirit weekend, we pray that people just submit their lives to the risen Lord Jesus and invite the Holy Spirit to come into their lives, I see inexplicable streams of tears running down people's faces. What's going on there? I could tell him about the transformed lives that I have seen. I could tell him about the countless martyrs down the centuries who've gladly gone to the most ghastly deaths for someone they've never met but know all about and love. Now, my words, I expect, I pray one day they might not be, but I expect they would be utterly foolish to him. He probably knows it all already. He's probably been bored to tears by weepy, soppy, over-emotional Christians telling them how amazing their lives have been since they gave their lives to Jesus. He probably knows about many of the martyrs. But because there is no empirical evidence to support much of this, it's of no interest to him. Paul addresses this as he writes in verse 22 that the Jews demand signs and the Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block for Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now we know that the Jews were expecting a Messiah in the mold of David and they looked for dramatic, miraculous confirmation of Jesus' claims and they demanded to Jesus' face signs that he would not give. The Greeks considered speculative philosophies the highest human ideals with the associated emphasis on rhetoric and elitism. Their idolatry was to conceive of God as ultimate reason, meaning, of course, what we deem to be reasonable. But to both, the cross was a stumbling block, literally a scandal, foolishness. Many Jews viewed the crucifixion as ultimate proof that Jesus had been cursed by God for some sin of his own. For it says in Deuteronomy 21 verse 23, you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. And Greeks found many aspects of the story of Christ's death foolish. And these views are echoed echoed by many today, quite understandably. I mean, who would have thought a suffering God, the ideal sinless man, destroyed, a criminal Messiah, and a way to God that is not based on our good deeds and our achievement? But it really doesn't make sense. It is foolish. It sounds wacky. But, should, but surely we should expect the ways of an omniscient and omnipotent God 
to be beyond the capability of our thinking. That, what, that is what makes the gospel so attractive to me, because it's all so unlikely. Who would have thought of this rescue plan for humanity? That, that is why Paul says in verse 25, For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. God is just immeasurably beyond anything we can ever do or think about. I want to look briefly at the first five verses of chapter 2 before I close. You might think this gives a preacher some comfort. One doesn't have to worry about lofty speech or wisdom, but just hope for a demonstration of the spirit and of power. The power that comes when the gospel message is read, God's word, or is faithfully proclaimed. The wonderful truth is that those um, whom the Spirit of God touches and convicts from whatever ethnic background, from whatever race, from whatever creed, from whatever socioeconomic class, whether they're rich or poor, clever or stupid, it doesn't matter. Whatever they are like, they will find in the cross and the preaching of it, both godly wisdom and the power to transform lives. I heard of how one of the world's greatest preachers, I mentioned it before, Charles Spurgeon, came to commit his life to Christ. In 1849, when Spurgeon was 15 years old, under conviction of sin and anxious to know forgiveness, he was obliged to stop on the road due to a heavy snowstorm. He found shelter in a primitive Methodist chapel in Colchester. As the service progressed, it appeared that the minister would not arrive, no doubt also held up in the deep snow. At last, a very thin deacon came into the pulpit, opened his Bible and read, Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. And then apparently, looking at the young Charles Spurgeon, he declared, young man, you are in trouble. You will never get out of it unless you look to Christ. He then lifted up his hands and exclaimed repeatedly, look, look, look. No fancy sermon. Spurgeon wrote later, I had been waiting to do 50 other things. But when I heard this word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away, and in heaven I will look on still in my joy unutterable. No great sermon, no fancy rhetoric, just the power of God at work. I'm going to finish by reading the American pastor John Wimber's conversion experience, which powerfully describes the effect of understanding what the cross is about. He said this, after I'd studied the Bible for about three months, I could have passed an elementary exam on the cross. I understood that there's one God who could be known in three persons. I understand Jesus is fully God and fully man and that he died on the cross for the sins of the world. But I didn't understand that I was a sinner. I thought I was a good guy. Oh, I knew I'd messed up here and there, but I didn't realize how serious my condition was. 
But one evening around this time, my wife said, I think it's time to do something about all that we've been learning. Then as I looked on in utter amazement, she knelt down on the floor and started praying to what seemed to me to be the ceiling plaster. Oh God, she said, I'm sorry for my sin. I couldn't believe it. She was a better person than I, yet she thought she was a sinner. I could feel her pain and the depth of her prayers. Soon she was weeping and repeating, I'm sorry for my sin. I started sweating bullets. I thought I was going to die. The perspiration ran down my face and I thought, I'm not going to do this. This is dumb. I'm a good guy. Then it struck me. She wasn't praying to the plaster. She was praying to a person, to a God who could hear her. In comparison to him, she knew she was a sinner in need of forgiveness. In a flash, the cross made personal sense to me. Suddenly, I knew something that I'd never known before. I had hurt God's feelings. He loved me, and in his love, he'd sent Jesus, but I'd turned away from that love. I'd shunned it all my life. I was a sinner desperately in need of the cross. Then I too was kneeling on the floor, sobbing, nose running, eyes watering, every square inch of my flesh perspiring profusely. I had this overwhelming sense that I was talking to someone who'd been with me all of my life but who I'd failed to recognize. Like her, I began talking to the living God, telling him I was a sinner. The only words I could say out loud were, Oh God, oh God, oh God. I knew something revolutionary was going on inside me. I thought... I hope this works, because I'm making a complete and utter fool of myself. Then the Lord brought to mind a man I'd seen in Pershing Square, Los Angeles, a number of years before. He was wearing a sign that had said, I'm a fool for Christ. Whose fool are you? I thought at the time, that's the most stupid thing I've ever seen. As I knelt on the floor, I realized the truth of that odd sign. The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. That night, I knelt at the cross and believed in Jesus. Let's pray. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son so that all who believe in him might not perish but have eternal life. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to die for us on the cross. Thank you that by his death, by the shedding of his blood, our sins are wiped clean. Set us free, Lord, from all the things that hold us back in this world. And give us the courage to speak out the message of your precious cross, even though in our culture, it sounds utterly foolish to so many people. We ask this in the name of your Son, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.